production of Truth Exchange and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends like you. If you'd like more information about Truth Exchange or how you can be a partner, please visit us online at truthexchange.com. I want in this lecture to attempt to get away from that uh, somewhat historical account, what uh, deconstructionists would call a diachronic account, sort of do a synthetic description of paganism. Sometimes we have the idea that pagans are the folks who play golf on Sunday mornings instead of going to church. That's an incorrect understanding, I think, of paganism. Pagan comes from the Latin term paganus, which means someone who works the earth and eventually then someone who actually worships the earth. And indeed, in that verse that, well, in those verses I read to you this morning, in particular that verse 25 of Romans 1, is a classic description of what paganism is. We should be aware, though, that when Paul describes these pagans, he's not thinking of people in grass skirts necessarily who dance around totem poles, sort of out there in the farthest aisles, um, somewhat odd folks. He's actually describing the Greco-Roman society of his day made up of very sophisticated and intelligent people. I mean, once you bought the presuppositions of paganism, it becomes a very intelligent system. And we wouldn't want to impugn, as such, the intelligence of pagans. Uh, the psalm is right to mock the idols, of course, but that there is, a, there is an intellectual coherence about paganism. And Romans 1.25 really indicates that. This is not people who don't believe and who do other things on Sunday mornings. This is people who, and you notice those two verbs there, worship, sebomai, uh, is a classic Greek term for all kinds of pagan and Christian worship, and, uh, and serve, latreo, which comes out of the Old Testament. It's the service of the Levites, and Paul picks up that term in Romans 12, which is your reasonable service. Uh, the same uh, term is used in uh, the noun form. So they worship and serve. But what's the object of the worship? And, and what is it then that makes this so wrong? It's the worship of the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In other words, the object of worship is all wrong. There's a fundamental error in who deserves worship. And inevitably, to worship the creature rather than the creator surely produces a totally antithetical system, or two antithetical systems. One worshiping the creator, the other worshiping the creature. In, in other words, is Paul really describing to us what is the ultimate conflict always? It's always a religious conflict. Secular humanism, we thought, was going to be the great, you know, um, opponent of the Christian faith in America. It was that sort of uh, program that was the translation of Marxism for Americans. But of course as communism as Marxism has disappeared slowly but surely or rather rapidly we might even say um, with a few notable holdouts but how long will China hold out? I don't think too long. Then the real question comes very clear. 
It's not secular humanism. It's not atheism. It's a different form of spirituality that becomes the great opponent of Christianity. It's worshiping and serving one thing rather than the other. And that's why I find so perspicacious the statement of Abraham Kuyper, wonderful Dutch theologian, prime minister of Holland, who came to the United States 100 years ago today. And before those massed uh, Presbyterians, uh, the fruit of, indeed, the power of Christianity in America at that time, and expressing the state at which Christianity had arrived in terms of its place in American society at Princeton at that moment, said to that group of people, do not forget, this was in the Stone Lectures of 1898, do not forget that the fundamental contrast has always been, is still, and always will be until the end, Christianity and paganism, the idols, or the living God. How did he know that? How did he know that a hundred years from now that we would be faced with either the worship of the creature or the worship of the creator? Well, he knew it because he was a Bible scholar. And he knew that ultimately that is the great divide. It is time, you see, Christians, to rediscover once again the biblical and uh, behind, well, after that, the reform notion of the antithesis. That we have here two antithetical systems jostling for position and jockeying for the control of the minds of men and women. So we're back in the garden, obviously, again. Well, when what is this system? What would be the heart of paganism? The, I don't necessarily use the word paganism now because Oh, I suppose you could think of all kinds of paganisms. You know, the pagans over in this part of the world and the pagans over in that part of the world. So I, I would like to use a different term that really says the same thing, but from a more uh, synthetic point of view, brings everything together. Because I am convinced, you see, that behind all expressions of paganism, there is one worldview. Indeed, my belief is that there are only two worldviews the ones that Paul describes in, first, in Romans 1, 25. You either worship the creature or you worship the creator. It's mind-blowing, isn't it, in its simplicity <laughs> and how easily we can read over those verses and, and, and not see the power of them in our day. Listen, this is so appropriate now in our time to understand that there are only two worldviews. Well, the word I want to use for this other worldview, in fact, I'll give you both terms that I use for the Christian worldview and for the pagan worldview. Christian worldview, you should think of in terms of this word, which is theism. And paganism, I like to use the term monism because I know it's a big word, but it's really quite small, right? You know, it's, it's not that long. I know all words with ism frighten some kinds of people. Some people are very frightened of fundamentalism. Monism expresses the idea that the whole of life is unified around one fundamental principle. Mono means one. My wife told me that I could make it easier for, for some people by simply asking them to eliminate the M, and then you would get oneism, and that's fine. Um, 
Or you can think of it another way. The O of monism really does then represent the one principle into which everything is forced. I almost said the circle of life, but, um, but we could talk about that, of course. But this uh, one circle into which all reality is placed and everything is understood is the essence of paganism, monism. So mono means one. Now you're used to words like monism. You use the, we've used the word um, monogamy, one marriage, monopoly, which is originally one city, but it means one company that you know dominates. Monotony, which is my lecture. Um, one tone. Well, monism has that oneness notion to it. So, how do we make sense of? paganism by using this term, this monism, and this one circle. Well, I'd like to propose to you five elements. I like to call them the five points of monism. They'll be opposed to the five points of Calvinism, obviously. Um, but there is a sense in which uh, the five points of monism are in direct opposition to any kind of five points of Christianity you could work up. There is here a fundamental and antithetical face-off. And it's important to see this, I believe, just for clarity's sake, in the day of political correctness and multiculturalism. I love all kinds of cultures, by the way, and love especially the foods of all those cultures. Um, but I love the languages, so I'm, I'm not opposed to, to different cultures, but it, um, it's the notion that out of all these cultures we can create one massive culture, you see. Because really there is no such thing as multiculturalism. It's, it's really a, a, a buzzword that wants us to leave the Christian culture we had and produce a different kind of culture. It's part of this deconstructionism. And in this day where of tolerance, you see, for all things, and, and the call to not speak in terms of uh, notions that separate and divide us because that ultimately of course is hate speech all that serves you see a monistic worldview and for the sake of clarity we have to see that the christian worldview cannot be put into this monistic circle as i go along with these five points you will very easily see the um, the fundamental antithesis with christianity so here goes. The first point would be that all is one and one is all. The essence of monism. In other words, the universe is a mass of undifferentiated related energy. God is not outside the universe. God is the universe. And here a term that you probably know would be pantheism. Another synonym, if you like, for monism. God is the universe. And the Christian creator-creature distinction is hereby eliminated. In other words, if I wanted to reproduce theism, I'd have to, just for the sake of this diagram, have another circle. When Paul says we worship the creator rather than the creature, he's saying that the creation is one thing and the creator is a totally different. Thing. And that, of course, is the essence of Christianity, the creator 
creature distinction. Now, the beauty of monism, you see, as opposed to atheism, Marxism, and all these um, humanisms of the past, is that it takes this circle and superimposes it over this one. So the circle of the divine, of God, is simply identified with the circle of life, thereby allowing all kinds of otherwise proud humanists to use terms like God, the spirit, spirituality, transcendence, and all these wonderful spiritual terms that are now coming into our society, are they not? You find people more and more spiritual. But you see, it's a different kind of spirituality than the Christian spirituality. I said that the 60s turned away from Christian spirituality. They turned east. They turned east to uh, eastern spirituality. And the essence of eastern spirituality is indeed monism. And so this notion of the circle becomes a very powerful symbol in our day for all kinds of movements and religions. I was at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago in 1993, and uh, I was there as an observer, and there were 125 different religions, 6,000 delegates in the Palmer House in Chicago, just up the street here. And uh, the symbol for the Parliament, of course, was a big circle with various um, flames on it. I tried to find out what the symbol meant, but nobody seemed to know. But I did note that it was a circle. Uh, I noticed the Mandela's were circles. The witches uh, who were there uh, cast a sacred circle. And then, of course, Disney has its circle, too, the circle of life. That really is, I believe, part of the, 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 the pagan brainwashing that's going on today. Because when you watch that movie, yeah, you can see themes like the Father and the Son, and you can Christianize it, but, you know, who really understands what's going on? It's that monkey who sits in the lotus position with his fingers like this, who is the witch doctor, who interprets, you know, the relationship between those who've gone before and the spiritual elements in the whole circle of life. And not once is there a mention of the God who created the heavens and the earth. I was um, realizing this about Lion King when my 13-year-old fell in love with Lion King problem. She had uh, mugs with Lion King. She had big posters. She had the CD music. And uh, when it came to Escondido, to the Dollar a Seat Theater, then the Jones family could go and see it. And she requested that we do so. So, of course, Dollar a Seat theaters are not the best and um, you know the kind of places where you walk in and there's popcorn that's deep on the floor <laughs> and you sit on the seats and they go further back than you thought they would and the Jones family watched Lion King. Well on the way out my wife in her great wisdom, wisdom whispered to me don't say anything negative. <laughs> Inevitably, my daughter sort of bounces up to me and says, what did you think, Dad? I said, well, the, um, it was so wonderfully drawn, wasn't it? <laughs> and I said, and that music by Elton John was fabulous. And she said, yes, Dad, but it was so pagan. 
<laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. So, but you see how our culture is being brainwashed into this kind of thinking that that the circle of life is all there is. Now it's true that there is a circle of life. God created this in a wonderful ecosystem that, that as Paul says in Romans 1, speaks about him. But of course, the Lion King doesn't speak about the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so, like every one of these pagan ways of, of spiritualizing the world, we're called to worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. You see how subtle it is. All those words like worship and spirituality are now in. But the God who made it all is out. By being this simply divine essence that is part of everything but doesn't have his own essence. You see, when the Bible begins, it makes that programmatic statement of which everything else really is commentary. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you've said that, you've really said everything. And everything of that system where God is separate and out of his bounty creates, flows everything else in the Christian system. And that's where we get ideas, for instance, like God's inc incommunicable attributes. God's incommunicable, it's not because God doesn't know how to speak. It's because he has attributes that he cannot communicate to us. Like his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his infinity, his eternity. You see, we will never become God. And God can never be contained within what he's made. It's very interesting to read accounts of modern Gnostics. Harold Bloom is one you should be aware of. Professor of English Literature at Yale University and a great expert on Shakespeare who in the 60s read the book by Hans Jonas, The Gnostic Religion, and says in his recent book, for those of you who don't know it, Omens of Millennium, that he converted to Gnosticism. So he, here is a, a man raises a Jew who as well discovers his true Judaism in Gnosticism, which is sort of a form of paganism with Christian parts to it. And um, what he says is very interesting as to the attractiveness of Gnosticism, and when I use that word, simply put monism or paganism in its place. He said this, Gnosticism is a knowing by and of, and this is the phrase that caught my attention, of an uncreated self. Can you see how fundamentally different that is? It's the same experience that um, Ram Dass had, you remember? that there was this essence within him that somehow was untouched by life and death, society, social rules, uh, his physical, his sexual identity. All that was not important, but this surviving I, well here's it said in even more clear terms, you see the pagan experience is the experience of knowing the self as uncreated, I've read one who says, I am as old as God. You see, in the pagan system, there is no creator. We co-create. We are the creators of our own reality. 
both individually and together. The uncreated self, the divine seed, the pearl, the spark, which is of the same substance as God. Do you see that? We share the same divine substance as God. Now logically, what does that make us? God. We're all part of the divine circle. So the entire circle is divine. That's the classic statement of paganism. So that's the first point. All is one and one is all, and all is divine so that everything is divine. The second is that humanity is one. This is a powerful notion of paganism, especially in our day, because uh, if everything is divine, all human beings are sort of little pieces of congealed divine energy, what Al Gore in his book Earth and the Balance calls holograms. That is, we are microcosms of the great macrocosm. And so he gives expression to his Southern Baptist Buddhist worldview. He's trying to have it both ways. He wants one foot in here and one foot in here. But of course, you cannot do that. You're, you're either in one or the other. So humanity, naturally, if we're all divine, we're all one. We're all joined together. And so, uh, if you believe that, it follows that we're all essentially good and that we must all be involved in this uh, burgeoning quest for personal spiritual discovery. And so we need to discover who we are. We need to let out who we are. We need to give vent to our fantasies. We need uh, to get rid of all limitations. And so companies in the West use New Age gurus to get their sales personnel to have a more powerful view of themselves. And so you get Western commerce and Eastern spirituality joined in a more powerful package. The schools is the same idea that uh, you cannot really teach little gods morality. You have to let their own morality come out from the inside. So uh, in our fast becoming global community, this uh, notion that humanity is one, you can see is a very powerful motor in projecting and promoting a unified world system. And uh, a world system that wants to be unifying will have to adopt some kinds of notions like this. I mean, they're already being talked about in this new spirituality, but it just so happens is that um, this is a very, very useful kind of thinking in uh, promoting a sort of very deep unification of the world on all kinds of levels. Thank you for joining us with this Truth Exchange production. Please join us next week as we continue to look at the five points of paganism. The music is produced by Dr. Peter Jones. On the Jericho Road Your heart he will bless On the Jericho Road There's room for just two No more and no less Just Jesus and you
message I bring No hope may be gone He'll cause you to sing Let Jesus come on Send shackles must fall On the Jericho road Will you answer his Jericho Road There's room for just two No more and no less Just Jesus and you Each burden he'll bear Each sorrow he'll share There's never a Jesus is